This call is from a correction facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. I've been in here for, I can tell you exactly, 11,945 days, okay? 11,945 days I've been in here, you know? And um, it hasn't been easy. A <laughs> hundred years? That's man, I'm a kid. I didn't do anything, you know? And, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was real painful, man. You know, because... My life was discarded as if, you know, like I was a piece of trash or something. You know, a hundred years, and I had dreams, and I wanted to do things. I wasn't committing crimes, you know? I was a very good young man. That is what happens in so many cases. The cops have a hunch because they're so smart at the scene. They have a hunch. And once they act on that hunch, they sort of develop tunnel vision and they take off marching in the wrong direction. And that happens in so many of these wrongful convictions. They opened the, the, uh, the cell door and I walked downstairs and I actually walked downstairs to, to be outside. It felt very strange um, to be, like I said, to be walking without no shackles on my feet. I thought it was a dream, but then again, it wasn't a dream. This is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. My guest this week is Messiah Johnson. And Messiah, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. So, Messiah, this case, and, and let's go back. It's a Virginia case. It is. You came from Norfolk? Yes. And this goes back to late 90s, right? Yes, it goes back to December 19th, 1997. The crime actually happened on December 5th, 1997. The 19th was the day of my arrest. This was an armed robbery of a hair salon in Norfolk in which nobody was hurt. That doesn't make it right. Um, don't get me wrong, I'm not in favor of armed robberies by any stretch of the imagination. But nonetheless, this is a robbery that you had nothing to do with. You had alibis. There was no physical evidence connecting you to it. And first of all, set the table for us here. How old were you at the time? What were you doing? And how was your life? I was 24 years old at the time. I was working for a government-funded program. It was a lead abatement program. I happened to be one of the people who were educated in the field very early on. I uh, So you were helping to get lead out of housing? Housing. And I got a biochemical certificate from ODU in this field. And at the time of my arrest, I was actually writing a proposal to HUD Homes for like $5 million to kind of extend our licenses to other states and kind of setting myself up for my career in this field. And then, of course, this happened. And it kind of just obliviated everything that I had planned for my life. I'm sitting here with you now. We had dinner last night. Here you are in a blue suit, you know, with a tie and looking the part of somebody who would be doing exactly what you described, like doing actually very good work, helping people. And, you know, if people want to go to my Instagram, it's at It's Jason Flom. You'll see pictures that I posted with Messiah and you'll see what I mean. You know, you look like an upstanding citizen like anybody else, and yet it's, you've been through this unbelievable ordeal, 20 years in prison. It's so strange because aside from the fact that there was no evidence, taking physical appearances aside, you just wouldn't seem to fit any sort of profile 
of somebody that would commit an armed robbery when you've got this whole other life. I mean, that's not a thing. It's just not a thing. But okay, let's go back to it. So this robbery takes place. Yes. And they're out, obviously, looking for suspects. And how did it end up that you even got on the radar? That's a good question because I didn't really understand it until I actually went to trial in August the following year. I try to take you back to the day I was arrested on the 19th of December. It really was a typical day in the life of any young man my age from where I'm from. A couple of friends hanging out. It was on a Friday early in the day. I had you know, made arrangements to see a friend of mine, a lady friend of mine, later on in the night. But prior to that, another friend of mine, he and I decided to go up to shoot pool, converse with some other friends. And we were doing that, and it, it kind of got to the time where I was about to go to see this lady friend. And so I made a phone call while I was in the club. It was a little bit too noisy. She couldn't hear me. So I said, look, I'm going to step outside across the street and make this phone call so you can hear me. You know, just to let her know I was on my way. And then he and I were going to part ways. And so as I was walking out of the club, it was several officers coming in. And the phone booth was directly across the street. We walked across the street. I didn't see any cops. So they must have been hiding around the building in the dark or something like that because, you know, as soon as I picked up the phone, you know, everything about my life kind of changed in an instance because all I could hear was screeching tires, flashing lights, and sirens. And in that moment, it was difficult to process what was happening. But from behind the lights, you know, before my eyes really had a chance to adjust, you could really hear the demands of put your hands up. And so... You don't really have time to process that, so I just complied, not really knowing what was going on. And I did so because, you know, once my eyes were able to adjust, it was three or four guns in my face. I remained calm because I didn't want to do anything that would cause me to be possibly shot, anything like that. And so we were asked to put our hands up, which we did, and we were placed in handcuffs. This is you and your one friend? Me and one other friend. And, you know, I didn't realize at the time only after studying the law, that this is where the miscarriage of justice began to make manifest against me because I was sat down on the curve with handcuffs on in between two police cars. And in Neal versus Biggers, if you understand, you know, the citation law, it tells you that any person that is singly displayed in handcuffs is presumed to be the person who did the crime. Of course. When you're doing a show up. And so we finally got a chance to look at the case later on and realize that the person who initially, I didn't know he was with the officers as we were leaving out of the club, he was with them. Oh, I see. And so once they put us in handcuffs, he told the police that, you know, well, one of the other victims that I work with is at his shop. And so instead of the police just going back to get him to do a show up, he actually took the person who initially identified me back there with him and allowed them to ride in the car together. As they were riding in the car together, it's easy for him to say, there he is right there. Right, so they could share the information exactly. and they had already seen you. Yeah, and we've seen this time and again. Of course, that's going to increase exponentially the percentage of people who are going to identify that suspect. We know from research, even when somebody sees a person in the defendant's box, just a normal person off the street who's now a juror, that 80% of people have a natural proclivity to think that that person must be guilty because otherwise what would they be doing there? But then when you take that and then you add to it someone who's been a victim and a person in handcuffs, 
on the street with the police, it's almost like a fait accompli. Like, it would be strange for them not to identify you. They would have to be like, um, I, I don't know, it'd have to be something bizarre. Like, you'd have to be the wrong race or something. Anyway, there's a lot of factors that go to that. So, at this point, did you realize how dire the situation was, or did you feel like they just made a mistake and I'm going to go home after this gets sorted out? No, prior to the show up, you know, there was a moment where one of the officers, I was like, yeah, I'm a little confused, officer. What is this about? And he was cordial. Well, you're a suspect in a crime. And I, what crime could that have been? We've been here the majority of the night, the day and night. So what are you talking about? And he was like, well, I'll let the detectives share that with you when you go downtown. So it was already, they had already made a decision. It was a predetermined idea that I was going downtown regardless, you know, even prior to the show up. At least that's what it seemed like to me. So now they take you downtown and they brought your friend. What was your friend's name? His name was Mondell. And so you and Mondell both got taken downtown? We did. Interrogated separately, I assume? Of course, you know, it's the whole, you know, we're going to put him in uh, this very cold cell. And those of us who have been locked up, you always know you're always put in a very ice cold cell. And it's so cold that you're in a fetal position just to keep warm. And so I've studied a lot of cases and I can always see why people really just want to just get away from the police station. And they just kind of just say, you know, I did it just to get away from the circumstances. Because it's a process. It's a very harsh on a person when you're in that very cold cell and then they bring you out. And They held you in this freezing cell for how long? Do you know? Uh, a few hours. Wow. Then you're going to be interrogated. But, yes. But you never confessed. I didn't have any knowledge of what they were talking about. Right. But we know that a lot of people do confess in those circumstances, as you just said, just to go home, even if they don't know what they're talking yes, about. Yes, yes. But you, but you did not. No. They brought me out after that and began the good cop, bad cop thing. And the first thing I said was, look, before you ask me any questions, I want to make a phone call to an attorney. I'm a practitioner of Islam. And I'm righteous and I'm civilized. So whatever you accuse me of, you know, you have the wrong person. I don't know anything about a robbery or any other crime. And so I didn't know it was dire until, you know, he got very upset. I think the fact that he automatically thought I was a Muslim. He began to talk about being a Muslim to me. And that's not what I am. I was a practitioner of Islam. My culture is a 5% nation of gods and earths. And um, I didn't really want to get into a dialogue with him about that. But then he said... Well, you don't have to talk to me. You're going to end up with 50 felonies. And then that's when it kind of began to, I tensed up. I was, you know, concerned then. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, we're going to be typing up about 50 felonies against you. And in the state of Virginia, that's one of the states that can stack charges. So for every individual robbery, I got an abduction charge, a firearm for the abduction, and a firearm for the robbery. So I ended up with 43 felonies, most of them carrying life sentences. Based on the one crime that they, they suspected you of doing. Exactly. Wow. Um, I don't even know what to say about that. I, I turned it one into 43. That math is just as fuzzy as could be. So how long were you interrogated for? You know, the records show that I was brought out to be interrogated and not said that I didn't know anything. And then I was taken right back to my cell, which is not the truth. You know, you would have to look at the time frame, you know, from the time I was down at the police operations center until the time I was actually taken to the jail, which was about seven to eight hours. And so I was taken out of that cell on three different occasions to the interrogation room. Did you get your phone call? 
I never got the phone call. And actually, if you look at my pretrial records, it will tell you that Messiah requests a phone call and we tell him a phone call is not one of his rights. But he left out the fact that I requested a phone call to talk to an attorney. So I'm guessing that you probably should have said, I want an attorney. And then they stop questioning you, right? If you say, I want to call an attorney, that's not the same as saying I want an attorney present. They did stop questioning me. Once I requested that, they stopped questioning me and took me back to the cell the final time. And then you were held for almost a year before your trial. Is that right? Just about nine months exactly. And I went to my first trial in August. And tell me about that, because you didn't have a court-appointed attorney. I did initially, which was the foundation of the injustice once I got into the courtroom. I had an attorney by the name of Andrew Sabak. And during preliminary hearing in the cells, it's very packed. Everybody's waiting to go for the hearing. And so several lawyers are coming, talking. He comes in to speak to me, and, you know, the first thing he says was, my name is Andrew Sabak, so forth and so on. He said, now look, what can you tell me about this crime? And which was perplexing to me. And I was like, look, I don't know anything about this crime. I'm not guilty of it. I want to make sure that when you go in here, you separate the witnesses and you, you know, make sure that they understand that I have anything to do with this. Okay. He leaves, comes back, and it's as if he didn't hear anything I said. You know, again, he was asking me, he said, well, when you and your friend committed this crime, and then my antennas went up immediately. What are you talking about? I just told you I didn't have anything to do with this crime. And so this man actually went into this courtroom without a stenographer which was one of my first requests because I figured that something was wrong. And when I walked in the courtroom, there was no sonographer. So my initial reaction to him was, where's the sonographer? And this guy told me, well, it's too late to get one now. We're already in here. And so I was frustrated, and I was speaking kind of loud, and the deputy was saying, look, we have to keep it down. We're about to, the court is going to be in session. So I said, okay. He separated the witnesses. These witnesses described two different people. One said this guy had on camouflage from head to toe. One said he had on a blue jacket. It was the kind of evidence that you simply just get up and say, Your Honor, based on the evidence, ask for the charge to be dismissed. But at the end of everything, you know, he simply said, That's all I have, Your Honor. The courtroom was dumbfounded. The judge had to look over top of his glass and say, That's it? And he said, Oh, other than the fact that we asked for a bond. Obviously, now you're extremely knowledgeable about the law, but at the time, you weren't, I'm assuming, right? No, I wasn't knowledgeable of the law, but you know when you're being wrong. What was your reaction? Did you, like, elbow him? Like, yo. I, I actually did, and the deputy had to step in again and say, look, you have to relax. Like, I'm saying to him, what are you doing, man? What happened? And so I didn't want to put up a fuss in the courtroom. I knew that the judge knew that something was wrong, but I made a phone call to him when I got back to the jail. We got on the phone. I said, look, what did you do to me in courtroom today, man? You didn't have a sonographer. I said, are you working with the Commonwealth or something? And, you know, he said, there's other people that feel like you may have committed this crime. And so my suggestion to you is if you don't want me on your case, I would suggest you get me off. And that basically told me that he was somehow working with the police department or the, the Commonwealth attorney. And we found out years later that he was actually disbarred because he was dealing with a mental deficiency. Wow. And so when I went to court to get him off of my case, the judge gave me a five-minute speech in the transcripts about how this is a good attorney. And I said, Your Honor, he told me he was working with the Commonwealth in so many words. And then he asked the attorney, like, do you, what do you say to this man who's accusing you of working with the Commonwealth? He said, well, am I getting a check from the Commonwealth? And the judge said, that's not what I'm asking you. He asked to speak to him in his chambers and remove them off my case. 
It was then that I hired an attorney. But at this point, this was still part of the initial phase, or had you already been yes. convicted? No, this was this was preliminary hearing. So okay, so now we're dealing with an attorney who is mentally impaired. Yes, doesn't have a stenographer in the courtroom, which alone should be impossible. I, th- th- I mean, that can't happen. And then you have a judge who's looking over his glasses at him and going. Really, dude? Like, yeah. really? And then they have been working with the Commonwealth against your best interests. And above all, you had an attorney who is coming to you, ignoring everything you're saying, time and time again, and going, tell me about how you robbed this place and who'd you do it with and all this other stuff. And you had to be looking forward to having your day in court and having an attorney who's got your back, who's going to go up there and tell the truth and exactly. make this go away. You know, my family and I decided that, and we didn't have a lot of money. We decided that we would get a, you know, attorney. Uh, we considered a seasoned attorney who had a name for himself and who had been, you know, practicing law for some time. And then what happened? We went into court on August nineteenth, um, nineteen ninety-eight. Now, initially, before we even went in, several people who were victims said, "Look, I can't identify anybody. These guys had on masks. They were covered up completely. It's no way I can come in here and identify anybody." And so for every person that came in and said that, those charges were dropped. And then we went through the trial, and one of the things that he asked when one of the witnesses got on stand was, did you see any photographs? And the witnesses said, yes. A detective came by my place of residence and showed me some photographs. He said, well, how many photographs did you see? He said, well, she said, I saw a book of about 60 photographs where I picked out a person that I thought may have been the person. And then my lawyer immediately asked for a mistrial because we hadn't seen any photographs. And the Commonwealth claimed she didn't know anything about it. And so the next day, the mistrial was granted. And I really didn't want the mistrial. I wanted to go through with this trial because I I felt like I had a jury of my peers. And what I mean by that is that the majority of the, the jury was black, which is unusual, you know, and of a certain age, closer to my age. And while I was sitting in the cell alone, my lawyer came back and said, look, they're offering you a plea deal. I said, well, why are you bringing it to me? I'm innocent. Like, there's no way I'm taking a plea deal. What was the plea? Three years. Three fucking years. You know, once I didn't take that plea deal, this became about malicious prosecution. And she knew it was really no evidence, you know, reliable evidence, which we found out later on. I'm locked up because I wear glasses. Because one of the, one of the robbers had glasses on? That's it. Yeah, because, I mean, how can you possibly have eyewitness identification when you, I mean, it's hard enough in a situation, a violent, chaotic situation to identify anybody if they don't have a mask. But with a mask? Come on. I mean, that's crazy. Like, but now you've refused the plea deal. Now they're out for blood because you had the audacity to reject the plea deal for a crime you didn't commit. Exactly. So it goes to trial. And how did it end up going so wrong? I testified. My witnesses testified, my alibi witnesses, there were no contradictions. And it's hard to explain. My lawyer, you know, there was really no pretrial investigation by him. Where I expected him to give me 100%, it was as if I was only getting like 90% from him. Just enough for him to be able to say to the bar, I did my job. But when you look at it more closely, you, you understand that there were a lot of things that he didn't do that he could have done. I know that by the time the evidence, this was what really stood out to my attorneys, by the time they had heard two days of trial, when they were time to go in and make a decision, a question came out from the jury. 
And that question was, who positively identified Messiah when and where? This was after all the evidence was presented to them. The case was just that confusing that they couldn't remember who identified me positively when and where. And the judge just said, you have to go from your own recollection. I can't tell you that. And so they went in. They went in there for about 45 minutes, not long. My lawyer came back to tell me, he said, look, it's not good. They found you guilty. And I was, um, I was stunned. I, I couldn't believe it, man. It was, um, I don't know, it's hard to explain. You're in, you're in sort of a haze. And as I was sitting there, you know, the jury began reading off how much time for each charge that I was convicted of. They were saying, you know, seven, seven, five, five, five. And there was a moment where my attorney looked at me and said, well, how much is that? And I was just like, man, you have the pen and paper. You're not adding this up? I, after the first five years, <laughs> you know, I didn't hear anything else. And so. How many charges were you convicted of? 26 charges. 26 charges for allegedly walking into a beauty salon, holding up the place, and not. Even whoever it was that did this didn't actually hurt anybody, right? No. I mean, it's a violent crime because there was a weapon involved. So, exactly. you know, legally speaking, it's a violent crime. But I do think there's an important distinction when no one was hurt. Obviously, it's traumatic for the victims in this sure. case to have gone through this. And there's, I don't want to diminish that in any way. But at the same time, it's bizarre when you know that murderers get 15 years, right? Exactly. And, and around the world, the most you can get in most civilized countries is 15 years, no matter what you've done, right? And here you have a crime in which nobody was hurt. And forgetting the fact that for a second that you were innocent. So they convicted you on 26 counts, but they ended up sentencing you when they added up the fives and the sevens and the everything else. 132 years. 132 years or so. And in Virginia... For those who don't know, you know, in you know, 1995, they took away the ability to have parole right. available to you. In addition to that, in that statute, there's a, an, an additional statute that says you also have to serve 85 percent of your time. So what I received was equivalent to life. a death sentence. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're to live the rest of your life in prison and then die there. Yeah, they know? abolished parole in 1995 in Virginia, which is uh, it's incomprehensible to me. But the idea— that they sentenced you to life in prison after offering you three years also. Like, how is there even a universe in which you could say, well, as a society, we were good with you doing three years for this. But because you exercised your constitutional right to a trial, you get 132 years. Yeah, it was devastating for me and my family. And I can tell you that it was a moment where I was at the jail after I had been sentenced. And my oldest daughter, who was about seven at the time, she came to see me. And, you know, she's an intelligent young lady. And she asked me, she said, Dad, do you really have 132 years to do in prison? And I said, yes. And, you know, her response was, you can't even live that long. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one 
could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. There was a moment, you know, which was really important to me while I was being sentenced. I, I didn't drop my head, but I think one of my family friends must have noticed that maybe I was about to. She actually stood up in court you know, and said, look, hold your head up. We're not going to give up. And it was in that moment, that very early for me, in that moment that I realized that I was going to have to continue fighting. And so after that, I just knew it was time for me to get back to business of fighting for my freedom. When you get in prison, when you really understand that they've decided that they want to take your life, because everything about my life changed. The way I walk, talk, you know, everything, the movements, how long I could be on the phone, who I can call, what kind of foods to eat, what kind of medical care, everything changed completely. And so I decided that I didn't want that to be my life. And so what I did was I I looked at the contrast to myself in prison. And the contrast is most of us have, who are doing time with that, has that amount, have fallen to despair and given up because Virginia has made it extremely difficult for you to get out of prison once you're in prison. Everything is contingent on newly discovered evidence. But a lot of people are not aware the anti-terrorism effect of death penalty. I speak about this all the time, that Bill Clinton enacted. Basically, it's telling you that once your direct appeal is over, where you have representation, that you are required to file a habeas corpus within a year. So you're expected, a law student, how long does it take that person to graduate? Eight years? Well, including college, yeah, it's yes. seven, whatever it is. Seven yeah. or whatever. You're required to have that knowledge and represent yourself, pro se, with inadequate information and materials. And if you don't, then after that year, you're judicially barred from ever being able to present legitimate claims, your constitutional rights being violated. It's just ridiculous. The, the idea that, that we would want to keep anybody in prison one day after we find out that they're innocent, regardless of whatever procedural 
you know, it's nuts, right? And the fact that we want to deny somebody like yourself the opportunity to present newly discovered evidence is completely illogical, too. And you really said it best. I mean, when you talk about the idea that, yeah, you're right, you're, you're given a year to, for a lot of people who hadn't been to college to learn everything you would have learned in college plus law school, not everything, but all the most important things that are going to help you in your defense then figure out how to file these papers and find the evidence that's been hidden from you in the first place that would have been much easier to find in the original trial and then file it and then it's much harder for a pro se motion to succeed than a motion that's filed by an attorney in the free world. So it's really a shame that that law has prevented so many other people from getting out that deserve to get out. I will say this. I know I hear the terminology mass incarceration quite often, but with this law and especially with the laws and the state of Virginia, you know, this is more along the lines of judicial genocide. This is not mass incarceration. You're talking about taking away generations of individuals and never giving them a second chance back out of society. And it's targeted with disenfranchised, mainly blacks and Latinos. Yeah, they make it easy to get in and really hard to get out. I mean, almost impossible. Well, fortunately, uh, I began to study the law. You know, I did a lot of research on my own case. And, you know, when I combed through the transcripts just to see how many, because I could remember all these contradictions, I ended up with nine pages of conflicting testimony. It was just mind-blowing to me. It was one of the things I presented to the Innocent Project and to other organizations. I did a lot of research, and I painted a very clear picture of my innocence with all the research I had done and began presenting it. And I was turned down by quite a few post-conviction organizations. And then the Innocence Projects began to materialize. And we're talking about University of Virginia Innocence Project who do incredible work. They do. Yeah, and I've been down there and and I know the people there and I encourage anyone listening to support them. You can just Google University of Virginia Innocence Project. It's a great organization. You'll hear more about that. One of the people that I had the pleasure of speaking to was Deirdre Enright. And... And I'm smiling now because I think about the first time I met Deirdre Enright. And she and I had a conversation. And even though we were having a conversation about my case, it was a personal conversation, too, about character and family and, you know, just my how much loss I had endured. And so... How many years have you been in by this point? 14, 15 years. And Deirdre is the director, right? Of the- she is director of the Innocent Project at UVA School of Law and runs the pro bono clinic. So for you, that's when things started to take a turn in the right direction. It did. She understood immediately once I presented those things to her. And she's impeccable in her investigation skills. She knew exactly how she wanted to you know, go about getting the necessary information. Her and her students went out. They utilized the Freedom of Information Act and found out that this guy had committed all these robberies around the same time that I was arrested. And this is what led them to the person who actually committed the crime. They went to see him, and he basically, five minutes into the conversation, he was like, I know why you're here. You know, they mentioned that, you know, this beauty salon got robbed, and he basically said, look, I know what you want. I'm the person who did this. He said he didn't know that anybody was actually locked up for the crime and um, had spoke to his spiritual advisors and family members. And, you know, he wanted to just come clean about it. Yeah, and it's amazing. It's really dramatic because they went to see him and they were only given 25 minutes to talk to him. That's correct. And in those 25 minutes, they had to somehow or other earn his trust and get him to confess to a crime that you were in prison for. And they did. 
And then from there, we began to build a case. Not forward. We started from the back. Once we got the confession in Virginia, you know, you don't take it directly to the Commonwealth because then they're going to go to all the witnesses involved. Everybody wants to say, look, this guy is trying to say that he didn't have anything to do with it. They're going to get Alpha Davis from those people. But we did that. And by the time we presented that to the courts, we got denied by the same judge who initially refused to give me a sentence reduction, but he was still on the bench. I think he's still present now. Because of Virginia law, after that year, you're not allowed to file a habeas corpus, second or successor habeas corpus. So he denied us. And so McCulloch was in office at the time. Right. And this gets to a really interesting yeah. part of the story, too, because Governor McAuliffe, um, who I've become very friendly with, to his credit, he had this sense of outrage when I was talking to him about these crazy sentences that Virginia was handing out to yeah. people. You know, we talked about Travion Blount and we talked exactly. about Lenny Singleton and we talked about some of these other people that were doing these literally like mind blowing sentences. And you were you were certainly one of them. I mean, like exactly. your sentence is so nuts. And he, fortunately, was in a position to do something about it. So how did that come down? So to me, he was very forward thinking governor. And he had made public comments about how, how far behind Virginia was compared to other states in the criminal justice system. And so we as a whole thought that it was best for us to put together a petition for clemency while he was in office before he left. And so we did that. And That's basically like buying a lottery ticket. It right? is. It is. I say that all the time. It is very difficult because they usually deal with those things after you've exhausted all your remedies. And because we had this newly discovered evidence, we were able to still go to the federal courts, which we're getting ready to do now because it's still pending. And so on the day that he was leaving, on the day before, we were asking, you know, has he ruled on Messiah's petition yet? And he's like, no, but he's getting to it and he'll get to it before he leaves. And, you know, Deirdre was calling periodically every hour. You know, I think we're going to get it. We're not sure yet. You know, I tried to call this person. They said, yeah, they're looking at it right now. So... The day of, I think no more than an hour after he was supposed to be leaving office, we get the call, you know, and they say, you've been granted a conditional pardon with the absolute aspect of the pardon still pending, you know, the outcome of the investigation. And that was a wonderful feeling, man, to hear that. Who called you? Deirdre called me. Right. We were just elated. We were overjoyed. When you say we, you and Deirdre and... The whole team, everybody. You know, Jidra Enright and Jennifer Givens, who was another attorney there, also a director, they had been coming to the prison regularly and calling for me. They assisted me and aided me in ways, you know, and anybody who who was represented by them will tell you they go above and beyond with their representation and helping you not only with the legal aspect, but personal things that you'd be going through in prison. It's rare you see somebody who does that, you know, with all the way pro se throughout, you know, but... This was a collective effort of all of us. Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people. What do you think? This, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best. And then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. 
I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. And the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. What was the reaction in the prison when you got this news? Were, were people wow. jealous? Were they happy? What was the reaction of the other incarcerated The majority men? of people were happy because they understood my struggle. They saw me working. There's two different types of people in prison, those who work in and get out and those who's just waiting for something to happen. And while I was in prison, I helped a lot of people along the way. Deirdre Enright and Jennifer Gills will tell you I've read people's cases, I've read multiple cases. I've done research myself and helped them with their cases, filed motions for them, but I've also introduced them to Deirdre Enright and Jennifer Givens. And so those people and a lot of people, I, I made quite a few friends. You can imagine after 20 years, you make some friends. They were just elated. How long did it take you to get out after the after the call? They want to make you do five months. I did four, from January to April. Right, because they have that re-entry program. That re-entry program. But I, I stayed on top of the people every day, like, look, you got to let me get this program, man. Everything was contingent on me getting out is me completing these programs. So they put me to the top of the list, and, you know. So you had, you had 112 years left to go, and now it turns to four months. Uh, how Did those four months go by fast or slow? It went by the same for me. I had put myself in that kind of mind frame that I'm not I don't really believe it till it actually happens you know even though I got the pardon with a discretionary release date you still don't believe it till it actually happens anybody I think everybody will tell you this until you actually cross that threshold you just don't believe it man and I've seen the video of you walking out of prison into the arms of your family and the attorneys from the Virginia Innocence Project it's a very powerful moving thing to see going back to prison for a second I sometimes like to ask what was the best and the worst thing that happened. Was there a moment, even in the darkest of times, when there was like a, a ray of light or hope? Mentally and emotionally, you know, there's valleys and peaks. You know, you're trying to make sense of everything that's happening to you. You know, you want to stay within the realm of reality, but that reality may be something that's for the rest of your life. And so for me, there was some a few dark moments and... I reached out to, you know, Nikki Giovanni. You know, she's a renowned black activist, scholar, poet, and educator because she had a poem that resonated with me called Quilting the Black IP, and I couldn't find the book anywhere. And so I wrote her, and she wrote me back and sent me two autographed books, and that kind of gave me that there's people out here that still really do care, you know. And so there were moments like that that really 
continue to inspire me to, you know, fight for my freedom. But I have to say this, all of who I am today is a, a reflection of of that which has been shaped and molded by my circumstance over the last 20 years. So I develop a very profound perspective about life that has allowed me to know my purpose. And within that purpose, it's really about helping others. And so at some point, I want to be able to develop a nonprofit, which I've you know really developed, and it's called the Lion Initiative, Liberating Individuals from Oppression Now. And it will have several programs in there, one about educating the the community about laws and how they can affect change through their legislators, people who are supposed to represent them. But I learned that a lot of elders in the communities, they don't have the education. They want to be educated about the law and how they can effectively make change. And so that in incarceration prevention with the youth and investigative practices for those who are in prison who don't have the money and can't find the resources, because everything in Virginia is based on post-conviction investigation. You really need that in order for you to even find newly discovered evidence. No, I'm glad you brought that up because that is truly what the Virginia Innocence Project did in your case. They went and really reinvestigated the case, they which did. was never investigated properly in the first place. Exactly. And, you know, if we had a fairer system, we would have defense attorneys, even public defenders, who were given enough time to work on each individual case, that they could at least mount some sort of effective investigation. Obviously, they're not going to be able to do, you know, what a private attorney who is working on just a few cases can do because they're always going to be overworked. But we need to reduce that burden because some of these guys are working on 100 cases at a time. Yeah. And, And there's just no way, even the best attorney in that situation can't possibly do the most effective job for their client. And in your case, it was literally your life that was hanging in the balance. And so forgetting the fact that you had this you know, half crazy, incompetent guy in the first place. Um, I mean, you had really hit the jackpot. I mean, between the mistaken eyewitnesses and the and the official misconduct, ineffective assistance of counsel, the show up, the I mean, everything. It's really it's it's the reverse jackpot. I mean, you, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong, and we know what the end result was. And the end result is an innocent man in prison for twenty years, and and even then, it's a miracle that you're here now and still fighting, which is great. And I want to talk about that, too, because you are fighting your case. I believe you will prevail, even though it's the a ed- tedious process. And EDPA has made least. it so difficult for federal judges to overturn state convictions, even when they know it's wrong. But that being said, you're also, you know, it seems to me like you're hitting the ground running, you know, not missing a beat. I know you're working now, but you have a skill that's that I want to talk about because, you know, we don't know who's listening. There might be somebody listening who might need some of your talents, you know, um, and talking about graphic design and, you know, talk about some of that stuff that... It was a trade that was available at Sussex Two State Prison, Communication, Graphic, Arts, and Design. It's the reentry process. Mm. And so I finally made it into the class and became proficient, but I'm still a felon. And so every time I go to fill out applications, so forth and so on... You got to check the box. You got to check the box. But if people want to, if they need somebody to do some design work for them or something like that, whether they're in Virginia or even do something you could do on the web, how could they reach out to you? My Gmail, this is Lordshine360, that's L-O-R-D-S-H-I-N-E. It's L-O-R-D-S-H-I-N-E 360 at gmail.com. That's correct. Can I'm on we, Facebook, Instagram. What's your Instagram? Um, Messiah Aladar. So it's Messiah, M-E-S-S-I-A-H. A-L-A-D-A-R. L-A. Space and then Johnson. Okay, Messiah, 
It's easy. I think once you type in Messiah and then A-L-A-D-A-R and then underscore Johnson. So, Messiah, I want to, um, of course, thank you for coming and and being here and and sharing this insane story. And I think a lot of people are going to take something out of it that's going to be meaningful to them. Not least of which is your spirit, which remains, you know, just so positive and it's it's quite remarkable. I want to make sure we ask you, is there anyone else that you want to thank? Do you want to shout out your girls? Yes. I couldn't be here today without all the love and support that I received from my family and friends. Uh, it was an arduous journey, and it still is, because um, I'm still fighting for exoneration. I need to be vindicated for all the stuff that you know I've been through. But they have truly been an inspiration to me, and I just couldn't have done it without them. And all of the students that helped work on this case, of course, Deirdre Enright, her family, Jennifer Givens, her family, the media, who eventually began reporting the true story. And I don't know, the list, can I can go on forever. Yourself for having me here today and allowing me to share this story and this truth, because ultimately I hope that this inspires somebody. Whether you're a prisoner in prison and feel like you're hopeless, these stories, and I've listen to a lot of your podcasts, they are inspiring. Even though I've gone through my own set of circumstances, those podcasts are still inspiring to me for me to continue fighting for myself and others. Well, that means a lot. I mean, No, you're, you're genuine. I, I, I met you a few months back, and I always want to know if somebody is genuine, you know, especially if you haven't gone through these set of circumstances. And you are... The real deal, man. Um, and I appreciate everything that you're doing because you could be doing so many other things. But to have somebody at some point inspire you and then for you to take on this cause, man, is truly important, man, for society. And I'm with you, man. Well, thank you, man. That means a lot. And um, and now, after I collect myself, um, I want to honor our tradition here at Wrongful Conviction. And our, our listeners know this is the part of the show where I get to uh, to basically sign off. But before I do that, um, and what I mean by that, I don't mean sign off, so don't, don't tune out because it's the best part of the show. <laughs> but I want to, uh, of course, thank you again, Messiah Johnson, for, for coming in and sharing um, your story with us. Um, I want to apologize to you for what society, America, Virginia, you know, put you through, but I know the best is yet to come for you, and I'm looking forward to a friendship and watching you, you know, succeed beyond everybody's wildest expectations. So I get to turn the microphone, my microphone off, and leave yours on for any closing thoughts that you have. I don't know if you know Melvin Van Peebles, Mario Van Peebles' father. Well, he said he had a friend that had three partners. They all went out to a club one day, and all three of them got locked up. Two of them got out on bail, went home. His friend got out the next day, and by the time he got there, his friends had split up his property in his house as if he was never coming back. And he said this is basically the mentality of society about prisoners. And so you have to know that that mentality won't bring about a change. You know, you have to know that these laws can affect you either directly or indirectly in some form or fashion if you're not involved. I hope that me coming here today, like I said, inspires others to continue fighting for themselves and others. It is truly a necessity that we begin to educate ourselves. So 
my plea to everybody is begin educating yourself. Begin, you know, getting behind these causes of criminal justice reform so we can bring about a true balance back in society. Thank you for listening. This has been an amazing experience for me and I hope for you too. We'll see you next week on Wrongful Conviction. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause, and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org. That's innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, that's at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen.